0: Amen. Father, freshly reminded of our unworthiness to enter your presence and also reminded of the precious blood of Christ our Savior who sanctifies, redeems, and justifies us, washes us pure and clean, and renders us presentable by his own righteousness to stand in your presence. We rejoice, entering boldly into the throne of grace, knowing That in Christ alone, our audience with you, our fellowship with you, our friendship with you, our eternal life and fellowship in glory with all of the redeemed is assured. Thank you for these promises that are ours in the covenant, fulfilled in Christ, our Savior and your Son. We thank you, Lord, that these words that were proclaimed from eternity past in your perfect timing took place in your decree in history such that all that was promised and proclaimed is ours if we are yours, your elect, the called and the chosen and appointed, to show forth now the praises of our God by testifying to the miracle of salvation as we grow in understanding boldness and reflecting the glory, proclaiming the truth, ministering to the saints, discipling our children, walking in a manner worthy of the call. Today, Lord, for every believer in the hearing of this message I pray that the proclamation of your word, as we have sung your praises, the prayers of the saints and the fellowship of the beloved would equip us for this task. If there are any in the hearing of this message who have not repented and believed in Christ alone as their Savior, we pray that the Spirit would use the proclamation of your inerrant truth to lead them to repentance and faith, to turn from sin and turn to Christ, because in Christ alone is salvation and hope eternal. We proclaim his glory, we proclaim his name, his glory, his dominion, his authority, and his majesty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. This morning we gather in the name of Jesus to lift up his holy name and to consider his word. And I'd like you to turn with me as you're able to Genesis 46, verses 8 through 34 today, as we continue to mark the testimony and revelation of God's faithfulness, in particular through the biography of his servant and covenant son, his appointed patriarch Jacob, and then his sons, and the events that surround these later years of this Abraham's grandson. The title of this morning's message is A Great Nation? mark at the end. Because from the outside, to the uninformed, not familiar with the promises of God, we would hardly call this small tribe, this band of 70 or so, anything impressive. But from God's perspective, and from the note of Moses in the text, it becomes clear that what we are witnessing in our text today are the roots, the seed of a great people. The aim of this morning's message is to communicate the significance Therefore, of Israel's humble beginnings, that is, Israel as a nation, as a called people to show forth the praises of their God and to hold out hope and light to all the nations, indeed, according to the promises to Abraham so many years ago, 200 plus, as we find the timeline in our text. With that, would you stand as you're able, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and consider with me patiently as we list several names today, some of them familiar, others not, as well as the events that surround the patriarch in Genesis 46, verses 8 through 34. Here is the word of God. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carrying Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods and they, that they had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, excuse me, this is verse 6, backing up a little, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. We get to verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. the sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of, the Canaan, of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puvah, Yoab, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan and together with his daughter Dinah, Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, verse 16, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Asban, Uri, Erodi, and Ereli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, uh, with Sira, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Haber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Jacob, Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. 19. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Belah, Bacher, Ashbel, Gera. Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, whom were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jehaziel, Gunai, Jazer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all, 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, who were his his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Verse 28. He had sent Judah, as Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him, to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot And went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A cross-reference I would like to begin this morning's message with comes to us by way of parable in Matthew 13. You may turn there with me if you're able, and let us behold an imagery, imagery that Jesus uses to describe a growing nation, in this case, the kingdom of God. This is Matthew 13, 31 and 32. The scriptures say, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. may have seemed like a long list of names that I read to you a moment before, but it just took us a few minutes. What if I were to stand up here and to read you the census data... For the United States government for 2023, how long would that list be? Well, that list would sound more like a great nation, would it not? This list, by comparison, by that reference, in Genesis 46, it's nothing. It's a mustard seed. It's something small indeed. Seventy, a motley crew of 70 persons, if you count them, uh, and the extended family and so forth, traveling south It could hardly be described as a great nation. A great nation, you say? It doesn't look like it to me. The uninformed outsider would no doubt conclude. Matthew 13, 31 through 32, however, lets us in on a way and means of God's glory being advanced through unlikely ways or unlikely circumstances. This passage in the gospel records a brief yet descriptive parable of the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not like a mighty plan executed by a hero where from the beginning people said they were most likely to succeed and have that picture in the yearbook will be successful for sure. No, it's a surprising thing. A man takes this small and tiny seed and surprisingly over the years it grows into a mighty tree. This is the way that God grew the nation of Israel and the scriptures say this is the way that God grows his kingdom as well. We're reminded of this when we think of the place that Jacob just left, Beersheba. Remember, last message was called under the tamarisk tree because we imagine 200 years ago when the Lord met Abraham here, he planted a tree that perhaps was still growing, providing shade in that region. Just like the tamarisk tree, we imagine still standing 200 years after the the, uh, grandfather of Jacob planted it in Beersheba. What begins in the sovereignty of God's purposes as a small or seemingly insignificant thing can grow in due time to fill the whole world with His glory. Pausing for application, we, the people of God, the confessing church, those who stand upon the Word of God as absolute, certainly in our society who boldly declares the rebellion and wants to celebrate their independence from the sound ethical teaching of Scripture, the moral authority of God's Word, and the historic and traditional understanding of the Word of God as the foundation of a just society, for those of us who represent a small minority marginalized at that in this society, we may relate to our numbers being that more akin to a mustard seed than a great tree. However, We're reminded in our passage today that the Lord does not need numbers to do great things. The church of Jesus Christ, so long as she remains rooted in the word of God, can, over the generations, in God's perfect timing, eventually fill the whole earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Take root and take heart, saints. That is the message from our passage today. If we at all can relate to this fledgling nation, if you, were, if you would even call it that at the time. When Jacob offered sacrifices in Beersheba, his tribe numbered less than 70, and they were compelled by the trial of famine to leave the land of their heritage behind. Wait, I thought you promised us this great nation and these boundaries. They're small and modest uh, uh, when compared to other surrounding kingdoms, nations, and empires. But now we have to leave them as well. No permanent place to call their home, a tent-dwelling nomadic people. And thus, with these discouraging thoughts, no doubt tempting their minds. Their livestock are driven in front of them and all their nomadic belongings packed. They can all fit, we presume, in the ox carts that are provided by Joseph. And here they are, trudging, trudging south, to find provision in Egypt. No one unfamiliar with the promises of God would have described this clan as a great nation at the time. And certainly no one would have recommended this relocation as a great national policy for growth and dominance. Move your whole tribe far away from home to dwell among a foreign and superior people. Nevertheless, God would be glorified and his word vindicated in due time as his unique plan continues to unfold. So we now, with the hindsight of history, redemptive history, given, uh, giving us the advantage, we note these events as formative and significant in the history of national Israel. Moses, of course, the author of Genesis, he draws our attention to these passages by placing a bookmark of sorts on these events. What is that bookmark? It's a genealogy or a lineage. So when you get to these lists of family names, that's like a signpost or a bookmark where the author draws our attention to a turning point, a milestone, something significant in the text. And here I submit to you the significant moment is the birth in some sense of a great nation, a turning point in their fortunes, Moses recognizes this with this genealogy in our text today. These, in context then, these names, are the seedling generations who will flourish in Egypt until Moses eventually leads forth a great nation back to the promised land for centuries beyond our passage today. That's a little introduction and overview, some context for us. Now, let's consider our text according to three main points, if you will, this morning. The journey of Israel, the nation of Israel, Jacob and his sons, to Egypt features the following. First of all, 8 through 27, generations. Secondly, restoration, the covenant family, 28 through 30. And thirdly, accommodation, that would be provisions in Egypt, 31 through 34. So this journey, today our passage, features generations restoration, and accommodations. First of all, generations. <coughs> <Excuse me. clears throat> we find today that Jacob's sons, Jacob's children, are listed in four categories. Notice in verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and it goes on to list them until we get to verse 15. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and his daughters numbering thirty-three. That is the first group of Jacob's descendants. And you'll note their category, four categories, the first, daughters and sons, in particular, of Leah. Who is Leah? Leah was the first of four wives of Jacob. Leah we might identify as the bride of deception. You kids remember, don't you? Jacob had covenanted with Laban, his father-in-law, future father in law, to work with him, work for him for seven years. the agreement was at the close of the seven years, you receive my daughter, the one you fell in love with, Rachel's hand in marriage. Well everything proceeds according to plan, so far as Jacob assumes, until that fateful night he has married the woman, and then the big reveal, after the dust settles and the veil's removed, we find it is not Rachel at all. But Leah, the oldest, Jacob comes up with some kind of crazy excuse that's not done in our country, that the younger should be married before the older and so forth. And so the twist in Jacob's fortunes and the tragedy and the dysfunction is that, uh, uh, of his family strikes a tone in the text. We find that it's not a happy ever after story of falling in love and marrying the bride of your youth and so forth. No, Jacob has to work another seven years until he can secure his beloved bride, or, until, or in exchange for his beloved bride who he receives, and then the strife continues. So the bride of deception is Leah. Nevertheless, there are redeeming purposes, even in the sordid history of this called one, Jacob. Though his story does not read like a noble one in the past, God nevertheless lists, according to these wives, the seedling generations, who would fulfill his purposes and grow into a great people. Second category are the sons of Gad, <clears throat> Ziphon, Haggai, and so forth. In verse 16 and following, in 18, we find what this or who these uh, stem from. These are the sons of Zilpah. Who is Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter? These she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Who is Zilpah? Kids, do you remember? She was the servant of Leah. Why did Zilpah become the wife of Jacob? Well, this was out of jealousy. There was a competition between Leah and Jacob for the affections, right, between Leah and Rachel, for the affections of their shared husband, Jacob. And so they each offered to try to get, win the contest of giving him the most children. They each offered their uh, maidservant to their husband as an additional wife to get them more clout. And so you see, under these circumstances, another group of children are born. In this case, it's Zilpah, that is, sons of the wife of Jealousy. 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And now, though Rachel was the beloved bride, she just has two children. And remember, at the birth of Benjamin, she herself passed away. And so Jacob sets up a stone of memorial and sadness in the place of her death, We've read about that in the past. And then there's the fourth category, the sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, and so forth. In verse 25, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. Who is Bilha? Well, she was the bride of envy. So uh, Rachel, envious of the more fruitful womb of her older sister, another wife of Jacob, offers her handmaid, Bilhah, to Jacob as yet a fourth wife, so that he might bear more sons still. Perhaps you remember this, all of this strife and contention, all of this drama and dysfunction that the scriptures record in chapters 29 and 30. The life of Jacob is a troubled one indeed. Jacob's life up to this point, now 130 years old, has been marked by numerous circumstances like this. And these scriptures are not shy about recording them. Even in our text today, in the way the genealogy is recorded, the author God and secondarily Moses do not obscure, omit, or deny such shameful situations as the sordid history of Jacob's marriages and the situations that led to the growth of his family under, yes, in many ways, sinful circumstances Instead, the Word of God features these examples as marvels of God's redemptive plan and purposes. In His decree, God has seen fit to plant the seed of a great nation from circumstances that no one would be proud of. God can use in His providence and purposes even the sins of people to accomplish His will, to accomplish His purposes. This is the genius and providential engineering of our sovereign, almighty God. And even in the text today, there is great hope for our own lives, riddled in our own biographies with sin and dysfunction and hardship, much of it by our own fault consequences in doing. And these consequences may well follow us all the way to the grave. But if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, by the grace of God, these consequences do not determine our eternal future. And though Jacob endured much of the hardship that comes from the natural consequences of sin, ultimately the redemptive story of Jacob shows that even through these sordid past and all of the, the uh, difficulties that he went through, God was accomplishing something great. God can redeem your life in spite of your own sin and in spite of the hardship that you were born into. Many of these children no doubt felt that it was unfair that they would be born under such circumstances where their parents are at odds with one another, their moms don't get along, and what is it like anyway to have four mothers and one father? must have been a strange upbringing. However, out of this, God can do mighty things, and so He does. This is a matter of historical record. This list accompanying the Beersheba Memorial draws our attention to its importance. We're reading of the seeds of a great people. Perhaps the best way to illustrate this, at least that I could think of this week, is a memorial in our own national history. Circumstances that were small and fledgling in our own history as a nation might serve to illustrate what's going on here. You remember the pilgrims, don't you? Does anyone remember how many were aboard on that fateful journey from England to America? The seed of a great nation, but unbeknownst to them, of course, 102. And over half of them died that first winter, we are told. There's a national monument called the Forefathers National Monument that stands to this day in Massachusetts. And under that monument are panels and on two panels are written that list of names. It's longer than the names here, but it's relatively similar. Who would have thought, looking at this starving band of a few refugees at the beginning, that God would use them in a mighty way? Well, no one who is just processing the situation by logic and probability. But there's another panel on that monument, and it reads this. And I wonder where... William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and uh, got this quote. This is from his book by the same name. He says, Thus, out of small beginnings, greater things have been produced by his hand that made all things of nothing and gives being to all things that are. As one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled hath shone unto many, yea, in some sort our whole nation." Let the glorious name of Jehovah have all praise. Can you believe in the wicked apostate nation such as we live that there yet stands a monument that mirrors some of the truth that we read in our text today? It gives us something, a standard, even in our own history, to repair to, does it not? There were leaders in our own society who recognized that it was against all odds and absolutely improbable, therefore God alone deserves the glory that anything became of America. Because at the beginning, they were nothing but a pitiful band of refugees with nary the resources to survive most of them that first winter, let alone start a great people. But here we are, proud and drunk on our luxury and our apparent uh, influence and foundation of greatness that we proclaim. But we have lost that foundation, generally speaking, in our society. The scriptures teach us to go back to our humble origins, to take a slice of that humble pie and to consume it and to recognize it is not our own strength, the might of our own arm that grants us any security assurance or hope of enduring right now. But instead, to the degree that we are a people that is strong in any way is to the glory of Yahweh, of Jehovah to the Lord. This was the lesson that Moses intended to convey through his writings to Israel. His words served as a monument. You were once a sinful band, a nothing handful that were exiled due to famine from your own inheritance and heritage. And by the grace of God alone, he provided you in Egypt the seedbed to become a great nation. Don't become proud and arrogant in your relative luxury, ease, and prosperity, but return to this monument over and over and recognize it is the hand of God that has got you where you are today. And therefore, do not take that for granted. Do not become proud and arrogant in and of yourselves, but return to that historical record of your humble beginnings. Now, in, our, uh, in the case of our covenant history as a church, as the bride of Jesus Christ, as a body of believers, we too share this same memorial. As we read the scriptures, we see that God has grown a great church, relatively speaking, as we look at history and the influence of the gospel and the thousands and thousands of Bible-proclaiming churches that now circle the globe as dots of lights, he, uh, dots of light here and there. Truly, the prophecy to Abraham that he—that is, the message and revelation of God to the to, to the forefather—would become a great nation and a light to all nations—is coming true in our day today. But what? Do, but to what do we owe this influence? Is our great ability as preachers to proclaim? Is it the uh, relative, you know, what do we have to boast of as the church of Jesus Christ? Nothing except Christ himself. And that is the message that we can draw as we go back. It may be tempting to be two things. One, self-confident. Two, discouraged in the day in which we live. But the reason for these words right here is to fight both of those temptations. Do not be discouraged if you feel like a small and insignificant band. And do not be self-confident, trusting in your own strength and resources to advance in the call that God has given you. No, the scriptures teach us that a great tree grows from a small seed. Why? So that God gets the glory. We are a hyper-narcissistic society. We have lost our understanding and appreciation in many ways of the providence of God. This is an opportunity for us as the church of Jesus Christ to shine all the brighter, to point to the glory and the providence and the miracle of history, to show that we don't deserve to be here, but every person alive today, be they a believer or not, owes their very existence to the merciful hand of a sovereign God who allowed the long chain of genealogy all the way back to Noah's eight family members to provide for them a history, that has given birth to them today. Is that by accident? Is that by happenstance? Is that by chance? No. It's by the sovereign hand of a providential and merciful God who has shown great long suffering to this wicked world and allowed us breath in our lungs as a gift that we do not deserve. How will we use that breath? Well, let us pray as Christians we use that breath to proclaim His glories. Let us pray for the unbeliever that He would use that breath to confess his sin of self-importance and arrogance, and to turn from his sense of misguided identity in his sin in himself, and to turn to Jesus Christ, and thus to and then and by that means join our number to proclaim his glories and to look upon this record in the scripture and the rest of the Word of God as well, how humble beginnings give way to great things in the plan and purposes of God. Even our own eternal life and the kingdom of God which grows as every soul is ransomed, confesses sin, and is regenerate according to the power of the miracle-working Holy Spirit. Point number two, the journey of Israel to Egypt not only features generations, but also restoration. And we see this in personal, profound, touching ways in 28 through 30. He, Jacob, has sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph, to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, that is Jacob, said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. There's just three short verses here, and so it might be easy to understate the touching moments here. But remember, Jacob is a very old man, 130 years old. And remember, he's been estranged from his favorite son, Jacob, for 22 years. Remember further that he has lived in depression and despair for two decades because he has, he has believed his son to be dead, consumed by that wild animal that his sons had lied to him about so long ago but something has changed. The dead has been ra- has, have been raised for all intents and purposes in Jacob's heart anyway. This is a resurrection story. And the story of Joseph's, uh, Joseph's being alive and well in Egypt revives the patriarch. But then here we see it revives him to the point where he has such rest and contentment that he is not, uh, that he is fine with God taking him even in this moment if that is his will. Before this, though, we see that Judah has an appointed call in this family. Judah was one of the original offenders all the way back on that fateful day when Joseph was thrown into a pit and those robes were stripped from him, stolen and desecrated with the blood of the false atonement sacrifice. The brothers attempt to cover their sin by showing these bloodied robes to their father. Surely he was killed by a wild animal. Judah was all part of this plot and this scheme, was he not? But something's changed. God has touched his heart. God is redeeming the family, and God has an appointment and call for Judah. We have seen this already in the text, in the touching intercession that Judah offers on behalf of his little brother, of the favorite bride, Benjamin. In 44 18, then Judah went up to him, to Joseph. And you remember, Joseph had disguised his identity from his brothers and was speaking to them harshly. And he's saying, your youngest brother, Benjamin, is going to have to be my servant. Judah pleads for him. O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? He goes back to describe the circumstances of his family this way, truthfully. As he closes his appeal and in his intercession to Joseph, the authority in this circumstance for the life and livelihood of his brother, verse 33 he closes with these touching words. Now, therefore, let your servant remain instead of the boy, You see Judah offering himself in exchange for his little brother as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. From Judah would come the lion of the tribe of Judah who himself would give himself in exchange in a real and tangible, perfect and sufficient way to save his covenant family, if you will. That lion of the tribe of Judah, kids, what is his name? Shout out the name of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Somebody must know it. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Any of you kids know? All right, adults, fill us in. That would be Jesus Christ. Very good. Someone, thank you. So Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is part of God's redemptive purposes in spite of all the hardship that Jacob's family has gone through. There is a calling on Judah's life. And part and parcel of this, even in our text, he has chosen to be the leader, to pave the way, to go before, to scout in advance, and to intercede once again, this time on behalf of his whole family, on the way to Egypt. Jacob, recognizing this call of Judah, at least to some degree, says in verse 28, to go ahead, he sends him ahead to Joseph, to show the way before him in Goshen. So, Judah's leadership continues to be recognized, and it's a foreshadowing of the importance of his tribe, bearing the lineage of the Messiah, where eventually the greater Joseph, the greater Judah would come and offer himself and intercede and pave the way to be the servant leader, to be the sacrifice and priest of his people. This restoration is not only marked by Judah's leadership, but also Joseph's condescension. One of my favorite terms in theology, And in this sense, it means, of course, stooping low. One who enjoys superiority and prominence humbles himself and accommodates himself to the lesser and the lowly. This is the picture of condescension. Of course, this picture is most greatly featured in all of human cosmic history in Jesus Christ taking on flesh being born of a woman. He who was forever exalted at the right hand of the Father and enjoyed the privilege and the glory of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Lord and sovereign of all, the creator by his very word of all that material exists in the universe, stooped low, became an infant, condescended, left his place of privilege and sovereignty and veiled it for a time to take on the burden of our redemption. There's a picture of something like this In Joseph, as a foreshadowing of the coming Jesus, in verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. So a king in these days, and a dignitary even today, does not just hitch up his chariot and go to meet someone unless an extraordinary circumstance is happening. Noah King, a person of authority and significance in office such as Joseph, he waits for people to approach him. That's the way his office is ordered and organized. That's the natural order of things according to the hierarchy of this political situation. But Joseph says, I'm not going to wait here in the comforts of my palace. I'm not going to remain only here on the sovereignty of my throne hitch up my means of transportation. I cannot wait any longer to be reunited with my father and the rest of the family, and he goes. He condescends, if you will. He steps off his throne into his chariot, and he runs to meet his family in the land of Goshen. This is Joseph's condescension. Given his political standing in office relative to immigrants and refugees and destitute people seeking favor, Joseph riding out, In his noble chariot to meet this group, this refugee clan and with their ox carts, it's a striking picture. He rides out nevertheless to encounter his family in this act of accommodating himself to the lowly. The exalted one is stooping low. He is going to be reunited to the covenant family. He's moved by an extraordinary covenant love. We love the Lord because he first loved us and gave himself for us. We were his enemies, just like Joseph's brothers were his one-time enemies. Joseph, nevertheless, models an extraordinary covenant love. When he had the power, the authority, and some might argue the, uh, the moral ability to punish his brothers and hold them accountable for their prior sin, he chose to forgive and to redeem this family and to reunite them and to reconcile them and use his office and position as a means of restoration of his whole family in spite of their sin and their crime and their abuse against him. Joseph, in his condescension, as a means of reconciliation, he uses his authority, he uses his position to restore this broken family in spite of the abuse And the affliction that they wielded upon him. Does that remind you of anything? Compare Joseph in this to Christ. We behold this touching moment of reconciliation, and there really ought to move us to a softness of heart. What a glorious picture. If this were a movie scene, certainly the score of a thousand strings would strike and they would reach that crescendo. And it would be hard there'd be if it was well done and captured the moment rightly in the theater, not a dry eye in the house as we see these men restored. If the the author of the story or if the director of the film had allowed us to experience this hardship and all the tragedy and all the difficulty that preceded this moment until finally father and son are reunited in a tearful embrace, It would move the hardest of hearts, if done right, to appreciate this moment, would it not? And yet this does not compare in the least to the condescension of Jesus Christ and the glorious reunion that a sinner has with a Savior when we come to Him. You know, in a few weeks, we're planning a baptism. And a baptism is a public recognition. It's a memorial of the great reconciliation between a sinner and a Savior. And the, therefore, that moment should be commemorated and remembered for a whole life long by those who are baptized. Because it is like this moment here when God, by the sacrifice of a covenant son, moves to restore a relationship once broken, seemingly irreparable, into something beautiful and incredible. Who are your covenant family? Who are those? Who you, weep, who you would weep for if you couldn't see them for 22 years? Who are those that you are most closely connected to in heart and in affection? This is an easy question to answer objectively from Scripture. Your covenant family are those whom Jesus also died for. Those are the closest relationships and connections that you have. Through the years, I've often been asked, How do you unify a church where people have different hobbies, different vocations, different ages, different preferences, different backgrounds, different histories? And you know, the answer to that question is also very easy. It's hard in our sin to achieve, but it's easy to answer. A church, no matter where you come from, your background, the hardships, the difficulties, the past, the dysfunction, the different experiences, is unified in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, at the communion table, when we all fellowship because he has redeemed us, it should be akin to this tearful embrace of the fellowship of the covenant family, enjoying one another's company, recognizing that a family member has died to make that possible. The innocent has laid down his life. The royal has stooped low to make that covenant bond possible. And thus, as we hold our own heart and affections accountable to this family bond, we will look forward ever increasingly so to fellowshipping with the body of Christ, to join in each other's company, recognizing that Jesus died to save us and to make us his family. Today, we have a picture of that. Lastly, this morning, as this great nation's fledgling moments and uh, origins are recorded, we see that this traveling to Egypt is marked by generations, restoration, and by accommodations God will provide for them. They come into the land of Goshen, and Joseph gives them instructions, 32 through 34. And the men are shepherds, for they're keepers of livestock. He said, he, uh, or He told his brothers in 31, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. So this is what he's going to tell Pharaoh. The men are shepherds, they're keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? So he's prepping them for this meeting, right? You still say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And notice there's a purpose, there's a strategy here. Joseph has a method to this. He says, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, first of all, notice that Joseph is the mediator here. We see Joseph in his condescension, picturing Christ. Here he is mediating on behalf of his family. He is going in between. He is paving the way for fellowship and accommodations in this foreign land. Because Joseph is beloved and accepted uh, by the Pharaoh, then he is the trusted servant and his recommendations the Pharaoh has said yes to without question all the way along. So Joseph knows he's likely to say yes as well. But this isn't the only provision that the people of God meet with in this foreign land. Not only do they have a mediator in Joseph, but their vocation, their calling as shepherds will also serve them well. Why the land of Goshen? Well, in a commentary, the pulpit commentary, three reasons are given in the context. I think this is helpful. Why settle in Goshen? Number one, it was suitable for their flocks and herds. The land of Goshen was pasture land, so it made sense. Secondly, maybe less obvious, it would secure their isolation from the Egyptians. So the Egyptians mostly lived, the populated areas in the Nile River Valley, but to the north and the more desolate, outlined regions, wilderness areas of Goshen were the pasture lands. So there'd be a separation from the populated area of Egypt to this more remote region. And then thirdly, in that it was to the north, The proximity was much closer to Canaan. So Joseph knows that one day they'll pack up and head home and they'll be closer to the exit if they're living in Goshen. Now there's perhaps a fourth, a little bit more providential reason for settling in Goshen. This had to do with the society. This is the hand of God even using weird biases to his advantage. So if you were a shepherd, you were not respected, you were marginalized, And you're considered lowly and an outsider in this society, an abomination, the scriptures say. All of these conditions serve to preserve the unique identity and the testimony of faithfulness, you know, the language, the culture, the history and traditions of a people. And this is not nationalism per se. What is this? This is the means whereby God will preserve the religion, the truth, the worship of the one true God, the testimony of the patriarchs, and the line of the Messiah from the otherwise corrupting influences of the pagans. We've seen this all through history. In the scriptures, have we not? As soon as there's fraternizing and intermarriage, not on the terms of God's word, but on the terms of, let's take a little bit of your culture, religious ideas, background, history, and false gods under which all of those things are defined and mix it with mine. It's called syncretism and it waters down the true testimony of the faith. Give it a few generations and you've lost the heritage. You've lost the line of the Messiah, God's purposes through that covenant family. You've lost the testimony of truth and the witness of the faithful. And all of these things, nevertheless, were preserved. In spite of relocating for 400 years in this land, God used the uh, dishonor of the Egyptians toward shepherds to preserve the unique calling of the people of God. So the accommodations in multiple ways also speak to God's sovereign hand. People of God would flourish in Goshen. Their flocks would greatly increase. Just like Jacob in the days when the spotted and the speckled were his and Laban, and God allowed his flocks to increase and increase, even though he was in exile, so to speak, in Padan a ram under an unjust guy, no doubt an unbeliever, Laban. Nevertheless, Jacob's flocks and family increased. And now, to an exponentially greater degree, the same would happen. Though the people of God are in exile, though they're in a foreign land, generally characterized by idolatry, uh, saving the influence of Joseph, the people of God, their flocks would grow great, their numbers would increase, and this 70 would grow, as historians figure, into millions in the next few centuries. The shepherd's hope. I cannot help but notice through the course of Scripture how shepherds were despised, not just in this time, but in the future as well. It is a pattern in the purposes of God to take the uncelebrated, the marginalized, and the lowly, and exalt them as. The called according to His purpose. Christians can relate to that today and the shepherds at the day when Jesus was born can relate as well. Tending the flock says an outcast people who were despised by the Egyptians for hundreds of years until they were conscripted in slavery. What hope did the people of God have then? The same hope that the shepherds tending the field the night when Jesus was born had as well. The Word of God. We don't know the timetable, but we know it with certainty. God will accomplish His purposes. And things that seem to stand in His way, He uses as the very means to accomplish that. And one day, the message of hope, exodus from exile, would appear to a group of shepherds. And just as it did to a group of slaves then, God would raise up a greater Moses, Jesus Christ, and announce to them today, to you, unto you, as born a Savior, Christ the Lord. And you will find Him in a lowly place, but He won't stay in a lowly place. He will lead a great victory parade and a great chain of His redemptive glory behind Him and all of the believers through all of the ages out of the exile of sin and the fallenness of this life to the glorious promises of the ever after in fellowship and friendship with Him, the new heavens and new earth. So we have a stake in this claim, do we not? We may be a small band, but in truth, our numbers are joined with these of old and more to come as a great nation. Let us remember this perspective as we close in prayer today. Father, I thank you for the message of hope from your, from your scriptures, which sets the tone for our souls of the truth of what's going on. We repent for times when we have marginalized. Lord, in our own mind, you forgive us for this. Sometimes we believe we deserve more. This is not true. Father, to the degree that you have promised us anything, it's more than we deserve. And we have riches beyond compare and beyond understanding in Christ our Lord and Savior. More than enough if we remember them to carry us through and to keep us hopeful in the time in between. I pray, Lord, that you would grow your church. May the seed, the mustard seed of the confessing church of Jesus Christ become a great tamarisk, a great mustard tree that covers the earth with its shade. In the meantime, may we labor with the confidence that you are accomplishing this, even against all odds and with the tools at your disposal that are not glorious in and of themselves, but will show forth the glory of God when you accomplish your purposes in spite of trial and affliction and famine, sword, wickedness, enemies, and even our own sin. We celebrate these things today as we confess your word is true and pray that we would walk in light of them leaving this place and applying your scriptures. We also pray if there are any lost in the hearing of this message, that the announcement of hope in Christ alone would touch their heart and that glorious reunion of falling upon your neck as it were, as the prodigal now welcomed home because the the lamb has been slain on their behalf would be their testimony. They could join us in the soon coming baptism as they proclaim publicly that Christ is their Lord and Savior. In all this, we pray that you would be glorified, Lord, and your church equipped. In Jesus' name, amen.